and welcome to the What The Heck podcast. I'm your host, Glenn. Every week I explore something unexplained, talk about what it is and look at what else it could possibly be. Research is done as academically as possible and references will be given after the stories. This week, I'm looking at Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. The plane left the Kuala Lumpur airport at 12.41am. By 1.01am on March 8th, 2014, Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 had reached its cruising altitude of 10,700 metres, or 35,000 feet. At 1.07am, the Aircraft Communication Addressing and Reporting System transmitted the last data about the aircraft's performance and then turned off. The last voice communications from the plane were made at 1.19am and by 1.21am the transponder, the part of the plane that communicates with air traffic control, was switched off. Soon afterwards, the plane entered Vietnamese airspace over the South China Sea. A satellite in geostationary orbit received hourly signals from the plane. The last one transmitted at 8.11am and the plane disappeared. Vietnamese controllers had taken notice of the plane crossing into their airspace, only to disappear. They had tried to contact the plane several times, but couldn't. They contacted Kuala Lumpur 18 minutes after the flight disappeared. They were meant to have notified them after five minutes if a plane hadn't checked in. Kuala Lumpur didn't communicate with their coordination centre by 2.30am. It took four more hours before they were notified and an emergency response was begun at 6.32am when the plane was meant to have landed in Beijing. Initially, the search was conducted over the South China Sea between Malaysia and Vietnam. The effort was international with 34 ships and 28 aircraft from seven countries searching for the missing plane. They didn't find anything there. In a few days, investigations discovered records of that night, which Air Force data backed up. At 1.30am, the plane turned around. Military and civilian radar picked it up and tracked it as it flew southwest over the Malay Peninsula, then northwest over the Andaman Sea. After that, the plane flew out of the radar range, disappearing completely. The change in flight path and subsequent journey had taken over an hour. This new information changed the area being searched. On March 15th, a week after the disappearance, investigators managed to determine two possible directions for the plane to have travelled in. One of the locations was somewhere between Java and Australia in the Indian Ocean, and the other was northward from Vietnam to Turkmenistan. Shortly after that was determined, the search was extended to include these places, Southeast Asia, Western China, the Indian subcontinent, and Central Asia as well. On March 24th, the Malaysian Prime Minister, Najib Razak, announced that investigators had analysed the final signals and that they had concluded that the plane had crashed in the Indian Ocean, 
around 2,500 kilometres or 1,500 miles southwest of Australia. This conclusion led to the belief that it was unlikely that anyone on board had survived. Malaysian officials had been denying the change in the plane's flight path, but around this time, the truth around the plane's flight path began to emerge to the public. The flight had actually been linking with a geostationary satellite over the Indian Ocean for six hours after the plane disappeared from radar. The satellite was operated by Inmarsat, a London company. This new information showed that the plane hadn't suffered from damage that caused it to go down. During the six hours that the plane was in contact with the satellite, it's believed that the plane stayed in high altitude and at high speed as it would while cruising. Every time the plane had contact, only the bare minimum information was released. Normally, passenger entertainment, cockpit texts and automated maintenance reports get sent across to the satellite. In this case, none of that appeared because all of those had been switched off or isolated away from the main system. In total, there were seven contacts. Two of those were initiated by the plane and the other five were initiated by the Inmarsat ground station. There were also two satellite phone calls made, but they went unanswered. Inmarsat had just begun to log some values that became important in the search. The most important value is called the burst timing offset. This value is the difference between the expected time of arrival and the actual time of arrival, and is calculated based on the transmission time from plane to satellite. It doesn't allow us to know the exact location of a plane, instead showing more of a circular set of possibilities. In the case of Flight 370, these circles can be reduced to arcs based on its range limit. The most important of these arcs is the seventh and final one. This contact showed that the plane had low fuel and that the main engines had failed. The arc itself stretched from Central Asia to somewhere in the vicinity of Antarctica and Flight 370 crossed over it at 8.19am. The plane's flight path was calculated based on the intersection. There were two possible endpoints. If the plane had turned north, it could be in Kazakhstan. If it had turned south, it would be somewhere in the Indian Ocean. After analysing the data, it was determined that the plane almost certainly turned south. This is where the second value from the Inmarsat logs comes in. This is called the burst frequency offset and measures radio frequency Doppler shifts associated with the high speed movement. These shifts are calculated in relation to satellite position. These shifts have to be predicted by the aircraft and satellite in order for them to communicate. The data logged from these can be less accurate due to satellite age, orbit tilt and temperature. However, these things leave traces. Doppler shifts had never been used to determine a plane's location before, but the Inmarsat technicians found a significant distortion that suggested a southward turn around 2.40am. This turn happened slightly northwest of Sumatra and was assumed to have gone straight south for a while, 
flying the general direction of Antarctica for six hours. Then the Doppler shift data showed a steep descent around five times greater than the normal descent rate. Within a few minutes of flight 370 crossing over the seventh arc, the plane is believed to have hit the ocean. It's possible that it had been shedding parts as it plummeted and judging by the electronic evidence, the landing wasn't controlled. It was believed that the plane had fractured upon impact, but nobody knew where the plane had crashed. There was no physical evidence to back up the satellite's information. Less than a week after the plane had disappeared, the Wall Street Journal published the first report about the satellite transmissions, revealing that the plane had been in the air for hours after going silent. Malaysian officials were forced to reveal that it was true. Investigators were dispatched from Europe, Australia and the United States. They entered the search to find it in a state of disarray. The Malaysian officials withholding information had meant that the initial searches were conducted in the wrong place. When the search began in the correct place, there was no floating debris. If the truth had been told right away, there was the possibility that the black box may have been found, which would have given all the information needed to solve the mystery. They searched the water surface until April 2014, nearly two months after they had begun. The search began in the depths. Search parties had narrowed down the undersea search to a narrow patch of seabed and they looked there. The Malaysian party was in charge of the investigation, but lacked the means to be able to recover anything from the depths. The Australian search party took the lead, mapping the topography of the seafloor. This needed to be done because the area they were searching was mostly unexplored. This mapping would allow them to send sonars down to drag along the seafloor to search for wreckage. On the anniversary of the disappearance, the next of kin of the passengers held a commemoration event in Kuala Lumpur. They were there to pressure the government to provide an explanation. Hundreds of people attended, most notably an uninvited guest. His name was Blaine Gibson and he had been watching the events unfold. Gibson was a self-proclaimed truth seeker. He didn't investigate conspiracy theories, but mysteries. Much like I do, except Gibson was able to physically travel to locations and investigate. Gibson was determined to help in the search. He left the commemoration and became the official beachcomber of the investigation. The officials didn't know because they were invested in their underwater search. Gibson went to Myanmar and travelled to the coast to ask the local people where the flotsam would wash up on the shore. They told him, and he asked a fisherman to take him there by boat. He was unsuccessful in finding anything. Instead, he gave the locals a contact number and asked them to keep an eye out and moved on. He visited the Maldives and the islands of Rodriguez and Mauritius. He still found nothing. On July 29, 2015, 16 months after the disappearance, a beach cleanup crew discovered a piece of airfoil on a beach in Reunion. The foreman called a radio station 
when the gendarme came to take the piece of debris. It was determined to be a piece from a Boeing 777, and when the serial numbers were examined, it was found to be a piece of Flight 370. Gibson joined the cleanup crew in the hopes that he could find more parts, but had no luck. He travelled to Australia to speak to oceanographers. The oceanographers, Charintha Patiarachi and David Griffin, were asked by Gibson whether they could determine where more debris was likely to appear. They told him either Madagascar or Mozambique. Gibson chose to go to Mozambique, arriving in February 2016. He asked around and eventually found himself on a sandbank called Paluma, just beyond a reef near the town of Vilanculos. Here, he and his boatman, Suleiman, discovered a grey triangular scrap that said no step on it. Gibson wasn't sure at first whether it was from the plane, but upon seeing some dolphins, he decided it had to be. He explained later that the dolphins helped because they were his mother's spirit animal. The decision was correct. It was indeed another piece of the plane. Gibson took it to Maputo, the capital of Mozambique, and handed the piece to the Australian consul. He then attended the second commemoration event before travelling to the northeastern shores of Madagascar. Here, he found several pieces. To this day, Gibson continues to search for debris in Madagascar, and the undersea investigation continues. Blaine Gibson has found over a third of all the debris that has been discovered on shorelines, some of which are still being investigated. This has been hit with backlash though, with some believing that the search being centred on Madagascar, that the pattern may be skewed and they may miss evidence further north. Gibson hopes to find debris that offers an explanation to the mystery, but is yet to find anything. However, his findings correlate with the signal analysis from Inmarsat. The current belief is that there is no chance of finding a large enough piece of the plane to explain anything, but Gibson believes that there is a chance that one of the passengers wrote a note before the plane disappeared and that it may be floating around in the ocean waiting to be found. As expected, there are theories about what happened to the plane to make it disappear. These might get a little wild, so just hold on while I go through them. The first theory is that the plane was intentionally made to disappear. In fact, the evidence seems to point to this being the case. How it happened is the theory. It's one of those that has multiple parts. The first is that control of the plane was seized as the plane was ascending. This would have happened from within the cockpit and not remotely because the satellite communication didn't show any anomalies in transmission. This lack of anomalies suggests that the seizing of control happened within the first 20 minutes of the flight taking off. If control hadn't been seized by then, there would be anomalies in the transmissions. 
The second part of the theory is that by the time the plane disappeared from the second radar, one of the pilots was incapacitated, locked out of the cockpit, or likely dead. Whoever was operating the plane must have switched off autopilot because of the turn it made to the southwest. There is a suggestion that the cabin was also depressurized and the electrical system was mostly shut down. Why that happened is unknown, but it was enough to temporarily sever the link to the satellite. An engineer studied the radar data and believes that the plane ascended further to around 40,000 feet. The engineer believes that this would accelerate the depressurization, incapacitating or killing everyone in the cabin of the plane. This wouldn't affect the cockpit because the oxygen tanks are linked to the masks in the cockpit. The problem with all of this is that it doesn't explain how the plane got damaged, nor does it explain why the plane plummeted in the way that it did. Expert Richard Godfrey believes that the plane rests at a place called Broken Ridge, an ocean plateau in the southern Indian Ocean. He published a report in 2021 that said the same. He mentions how previous searches of the area have missed the plateau by mere kilometres. This accounts for why it hasn't been found yet, and there are people who are interested in having a look to find out. They are planning a a summer 2022 excursion to check the area. One theory, linked to the first theory, suggests that the lack of oxygen caused the deaths of many of the passengers and the ship's captain steered the plane into the ocean in a suicidal state. However, this has been refuted by a report in July 2018. The report states that the pilot and first officer showed no signs beforehand that they would have deliberately steered the plane into the ocean. A former pilot speculated that there may have been an electrical fire on the plane that led to the pilots attempting to find an emergency landing with the fire incapacitating the crew and passengers. However, it's unlikely that the plane would travel for several hours after a fire broke out. It's also possible that the plane landed safely in the water, sinking in mostly one piece, or even that it managed to land safely and was hidden somewhere, or that nobody thought to look in the other place it could have ended up, Kazakhstan. For now, it's possible that the plane may be found later on this year, if Richard Godfrey's theory is correct. The story from this episode came from a Britannica article called Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 Disappearance and an article from The Atlantic called What Really Happened to Malaysia's Missing Airplane. Theories from this episode came from The Atlantic article, a 7 News Australia article called Expert Claims to Have Found MH370 in Major Missing Plane Breakthrough and an Insider article called The mystery of MH370 remains more than five years later. References for the episode and links to studies will be posted on social media for you to have a look at. Speaking of social media, links to those and other ways to listen are in the episode description under my link tree. You can currently find me on Facebook and Instagram. 
Patreon is getting an upload of one of the transcripts each week as part of the £3 tier. The link to the Patreon is also on the link tree and, as before, you're welcome to pledge more than £3 a month and I'll find something extra special for the people that do. I do have an email set up on the link tree, but it doesn't open a new email, so that's in the description of the episode too. Send me your spooky stories, unexplained events, and anything else you want me to read out. Or, if you have any corrections or issues with things I've said, let me know and I'll address them as soon as I see the email. The next creature feature will be out on Saturday, and the next week's episode comes out on March 16th, so hold on until then. Thank <laughs> you.